Because um, it's a really dodgy lift. You can't okay. get full people Sorry. in there without risking it breaking down. Right, fine. So it work. No problem. Jeez. That's how we do. This is crazy, man. But in a kind of a cool way. Yeah, it's the kind of place where if you were like a Victorian child, you would lose a hand. Yeah. Probably not far off that happening, a fair risk of that happening now. Yeah, if you reach into the lift before it stops. Jesus. Hello, this is Rob Cutforth, and uh, you're listening to The End of All Things. I am uh, broadcasting live, live. Um, I am coming to you today from the beaches of the Yucatan Peninsula, where I'm spending my Christmas vacation. Um, it's not Christmas anymore, it's the beginning of January. Um, I wonder if, uh, it's about 7 a.m., and as you can hear, that's the water. Um, I wish I could describe, describe the sky somehow. Maybe imagine a nuclear dawn, but good. Yeah, there, there is a reason I am not a published writer. Uh, <laughs> I'm here because I'm, I'm attending the wedding of one of my good friends that I've known for a long time. And um, as if the water, which is crystal clear and the temperature of a bath isn't nice enough, and the white sands, I'm also in the coffee belt, so I'm drinking probably the greatest cup of coffee that's ever been made. Um, I'm looking out now, and there is a gargantuan cruise ship meandering past. Um, to my right, there's this resort that's basically been built to look like some sort of Roman Colosseum. Um, and I, I'm staying in one that's a little bit more of this of the scene, little tiki roofs and um, deck chairs. Uh, and unlike the med, and I, oh man, and unlike the med, the sun loungers are free. And yes, I realize what that makes me sound like, and I don't care. Well, I do care. I had a conversation with uh, the bride's uncle, this really interesting guy during the wedding. He was a he's a political scientist and lecturer at Carleton University, or former lecturer. Uh, now retired, and uh, we were talking about the, our new prime minister in Canada, Justin Trudeau, and um, how we're both rather cynical about what it's going to be like, but we discussed uh, the environment and the refugees and you know, the plight of the refugees and how badly the uh, Canadian government has done, and the British government, really. Um, and. And then we were talking about the environment as well and the things, you know, we need to do to, to fix the environment. And I realized as I'm doing that, as I'm talking from the beach uh, of this all-inclusive resort, that not only am I a champagne socialist, but I'm also a champagne environmentalist, um, which was pretty uh, eye-opening, but also depressing. So even though I'm in, you know, this idyllic paradise, I'm, I still find a way to uh, feel guilty and horrible about myself. 
rightfully so in this case, I think. Uh, I flew 11 hours uh, long haul, and I'm staying at a resort where the environmental impact of global warming couldn't be more apparent because they've got this stinky seaweed called sargasso that um, the army has come to clear away. And this just shows you how fucked up the world is. This seaweed is basically a warning that global warming is happening because it thrives in warmer waters and in less salty waters. But now they're, t they're finding industrial uses for the seaweed. So just th think about that. Roll that around in your head for a second. It's so crazy, man. But, uh, yeah, as a champagne environmentalist, I'm just going to take advantage while I still can before, you know, this shit's gone forever. This beach is completely abandoned. I'm, I'm literally the only person on it um, because, you know, it's a resort and everyone's fat and pissed, so they won't be up until about, oh, good noonish. In this episode, I speak to Jim Hanks, who is the digital editor at Comma Press, which is a, uh, a short story publisher in Manchester. And he also is in charge of a new platform called The MacGuffin, um, which is this website, basically, where you upload readings of your own work um, that can be judged and analyzed and rated by an army of readers. Um, for readers, you can, if you're looking for short stories or poetry um, by undiscovered writers, it's a good place to find them. And you can actually hear the author reading out their own work, which is quite interesting, actually. Comma Press uh, has been around for a few years in Manchester. If you're from Manchester and you write, you've heard of them. They also put on, I don't know if you listened to my first podcast, or was it my first or second? I can't remember. The one I talk about the uh, graduate writing day that I attended. And I was a bit, it's, it's put on by Comma Press. And um, clearly, Jim and Ra prob didn't listen to that podcast, or they probably wouldn't have come on this one. But um, I realized that since I, since that episode and my big whinge, then I've calmed down a bit and realized that I think most of my anger was misplaced and uh, was, should have been placed more at my own feet. And to be honest, I've, since that episode, I've spoken to a few other people that were there, writers, who found it very useful. So it's just, I'm a, I'm this, I'm a jet setter holiday resort guy now. So I'm hard to please, what can I tell you? God damn it, that coffee was good. I might, I, it's really difficult for me to sit here and record when I realize I could probably be on my way getting another one of those coffees instead. Had a couple of new exciting uh, developments in the life of this podcast. Um, number one, Ian McMillan uh, from The Verb uh, as a subscriber now, which is exciting and daunting to think that he's actually listening to the words I'm speaking right now um, and probably judging me. <laughs> I've also been approached for sponsorship of this podcast, which is you know quite exciting. Cold called. I wasn't even whoring myself out. Okay, do you hear that sound? Do you know what that is? That is a motorized sand straightener is the only way that I can describe this. It's a man pushing this, it looks like a big giant lawnmower that flattens 
the footprints out of the sand. It's like a, uh, oh God, he's getting really close. It's like a, um, one of those snow things that you see at ski hills. Yeah, he's getting really close. That's really annoying now, isn't it? He is walking up and down the length of this beach, and it is not a small beach. It's flattening the uh, footprints. This place, man, it's unbelievable. I suppose I should be just—I should just accept it and realize that you know the position I'm in and be happy. But you see something like that, and you just think, "How fucking ridiculous is this?" Um, the sun has now gone up bit further into the clouds uh, the cruise ship has moved about three feet across the horizon and um, yeah I forgot what I was talking about oh yeah sponsorship so yeah I've been approached for sponsorship by two different people um, which is exciting and interesting uh, I don't know what they want me to do but I'm going to tell you right now I will happily whore this podcast out for cash I'm not I'm, what kind of sponsorship would I say no to maybe the National Front I probably wouldn't do anything for them uh, but other than that I think I'm pretty much open man I think it would be kind of hilarious if like an oil company or something sponsored this podcast and I am taking the piss a bit I won't, I'd probably say no to a, an oil company and a coal mine and a fracking company probably yeah Quadrilla will probably get no love from this podcast he says the champagne environmentalist sitting on a beach in Mexico. So it's kind of going to my head a bit. Approach for sponsorship, followed by famous people. So I've come up with a, a ridiculously ambitious goal for 2016. And that's to interview Stephen King. I've already started my concession speech in, for this December to say, oh, well, we didn't get Stephen King this year, maybe next year. But, uh, you know, who knows? Right, a second cruise ship appeared, and people are waking up. So I am going to take off. Enjoy this talk with Jim Hinks. I'm Jim Hinks. I work for Common Press. We're a independent publisher based in Manchester. We've been going for about 15 years now, mm-hmm. and we specialise in publishing short stories. Um, so uh, about half of what we do is translated mm-hmm. um, quite a lot from uh, the Arabic so we publish uh, an Iraqi writer called Hassan Blasim who's pretty well known Okay. who's a refugee in Finland who won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2014 which sort of was like a kind of big scoop for us Yeah. Um, and he, but he's kind of representative of the, what we try to do which is sort of finding short story writers who specialise in the form from lots of different languages and cultures and kind of bringing them into the English. Um, We publish a fair bit from Chinese as well, Mm -hmm. uh, Japanese, Turkish, German, Polish, and uh, and then in terms of our domestic stuff, um, we do a lot of kind of science and fiction crossovers, so a lot of books where we commission short story writers and we go we send them to go and work with scientists so they'd like to spend a day in the lab learning about their research in whatever it is so it might right. be like um uh life sciences bio research yeah so non-fiction well no actually to write fiction about it so they, oh, they right. kind of learn about 
these people who are um, at the vanguard of a particular field of research. So let's say artificial intelligence. Okay. And then kind of learn about it, learn where it's going, and then write a story set in the nearish future, exploring some of the ethical dimensions of, oh, right. of that kind of thing. Oh, that's quite and cool. And then the scientist in these books usually writes an afterword that will be like, well, this is plausible, mm-hmm. but I don't think this would happen, and that kind of thing. So it's using fiction as part of a kind of conversation about science and and I think trying to put real science back into science fiction yeah basically and quite a lot of genre crossover stuff as well so a few horror anthologies but kind of I would say smart horror so Mm -hmm. based for example on Freud's uh, theory of the uncanny that's you know this is the second podcast in a row someone's brought that up Nick said the same thing because he said that's what Nightjar yes kind of does as well so right. and Nick is in one of those anthologies. So. Oh right, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, incestuous. <laughs> yeah, he, he's the Kevin Bacon of the <laughs> yeah. literary world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a kind of overview of what we do. Like, um, for example, coming up, we've got a book about protests where um, writers are kind of paired with historians to look at various moments of kind of social protest and upheaval, okay. and kind of write write stories about that but sort of to try and do it in interesting ways so maybe you know some would be from the point of view of the oppressor or mm-hmm. you know um, that kind of thing and look at interesting points in history as well that often get overlooked I mean the short story collection the single author collection is kind of the end result in a way mm-hmm. um, and the kind of the thing that you as a press tend to get judged on right but we do a lot of anthologies that try to do interesting things, try to cross-pollinate writers and genres. So, for example, in the science fiction books, we would get writers who were crime writers or mm-hmm. writers who were literary fiction yeah. and scare quotes yeah. to do that, um, to kind of stretch themselves and um, and also hopefully cross-pollinate the readerships mm-hmm. um, between science fiction sure. and literary fiction, that kind of thing. So that's what we do. So how do you find... Uh, if you go back to the when you're doing the you're interpreting foreign writers, yeah, how do you find them? It's really difficult because um, there's a whole apparatus pushing stuff at you, and very often that is not the kind of stuff that you want to publish. Yeah. So let's say you're looking to do a short story anthology of stories from, I don't know, let's pick a country, France. Yeah. Right. You're going to have a whole load of publishers and literary agents who are all kind of set up to sell rights to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, their idea of what you want to buy in terms of rights or the kind of writers you, you're looking for is very often not what you actually want. Mm-hmm. So they want to push the writers that who are basically novelists, not short story okay. writers, yep. who are kind of prize winners for writing commercial fiction very often. <clears throat> but that's not what we're about. We're about we'd rather publish someone good that no one's heard of yep. who's a specialist short story writer yep. and kind of discover them than publish someone who's like a household name. Yeah, so how would you discover someone that's unknown? Like It's really hard. You have to find yeah. people who are short story specialists mm-hmm. in that country. And you get it's the same old story wherever you go. Everyone goes, oh, the short story, it's not really very popular here yeah. compared to the novel. Mm-hmm. But then if you dig deeper, that you, you find wherever you go that there are people who are really passionate about it. But it's just about not asking the obvious yeah. people. It's like if someone came to England and said, right, we're, uh, I don't know, a Chinese publisher and we want to do an anthology of English short stories. If you went to the top 
literary agents and you went to Penguin and HarperCollins, mm-hmm. they're going to say, right, okay, oh, well, Martin Amos and Julian Bond. You aren't really necessarily specialist short story writers. Mm-hmm. So you've got to kind of go beyond that and you'd yeah. hope that someone would have the nails coming to England to go, oh, I'll ask Comic Press, yeah. I'll ask... Um, yeah, Nightjar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whoever, specialist short story publishers. Yeah. Um, so it's about kind of finding those people. So you would say no to a like when it, to like I say Martin Amos wanted to do a short story anthology. What the the actual Martin Amos or the equivalent in another country. the equivalent in another country? Um, sorry. Well, we we often end up having a bit of a mix. So it it sometimes helps to have some names that people have heard of. Mm-hmm. So for example, we just did the Book of Tokyo, and that includes some pretty. Uh, well-known authors, mm-hmm. so um, uh, yeah, Benani Yoshimoto mm-hmm. uh, being um, an, an obvious one. Like I think most people have heard of uh, who are slightly interested in Japanese literature have heard of Benani Yoshimoto. Yeah, she's a good short story writer, but that helps that name attached to it helps us include some people who aren't very well known or yeah. very well translated at yeah. all in, in English. So um, yeah, it kind of. It helps those writers, I think, to be uh, kind of involved in a book that mm-hmm. has a better known author, and it allows. I mean, just in practical terms, helps us sell a book to bookshops and reps if it's mm-hmm. got like maybe one or two names yeah. that they've heard of. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that, that's a gimme, really, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, so much of publishing in the UK or book selling is kind of based around author profile and celebrity. That you know, it kind of, it just depresses me mm-hmm. utterly and you know I go to quite a lot of uh, sort of publisher and bookseller conferences and events and you know how to get published for independent authors type yeah. things and very very often I hear commissioning editors kind of pretend that it's not about your existing profile and then you look at the list of the people that they publish and they're all like comedians mm-hmm. they're, they're oh really, yeah Katie Price yeah well but not even that but like kind of on the more literary end of things mm-hmm. more like you know they might not be a household name but they've kind of been on TV or the radio yeah. qu- quite a bit and and it is very much about trying to get the marketing department to green light it because they think well people have heard of this person it's easy to get them to do the publicity because they're a comedian we can book them onto radio shows or TV shows yeah. to do the you know Ha <laughs> funny chat. Yeah. Oh, by the way, this is my book mm-hmm. published by Penguin Random House. Yeah. Um, type stuff, and that's completely the opposite of what we're about. Right. Comma press. So, w- would it be possible for someone, just say a short story writer, on their own, to contact you, or is it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're interested in. Okay. To be honest, we're not that interested in people who are novelists but just have a few short stories mm-hmm. we're interested in people who have an affinity and love for the form right. it's a very distinct mm-hmm. form it's got its own demands you get people who are good short story writers but not good novelists and vice yeah. versa so with someone that say and I know this is probably this is I, I think I know the answer to this question already but say someone that hasn't been published yeah can they do you take is there a slush pile at Comic Press there is we do, well we do um, uh, new writer anthologies in scare quotes, but we tend to theme them. Yep. So it's actually been ages since uh, we published the last one, and the next one is is coming out in a few months, and then that's followed pretty hot, hot on the heels by another one called Nouvelle Espionage. Mm-hmm. So the idea with that is to reinvent the spy story, but in any kind of 
take on that that you can imagine. So it could be about you know people spying on their housemates, right? <laughs> or it could be it's about avoid sort of getting away from the cliches and tropes of it. And the reason that we theme them in uh, that kind of way is is twofold really. The first is because it's really hard to just publish a book called a new writer anthology and mm-hmm. get it into bookshops. Yeah, no one really cares. Um, sad to say so yeah. to have some kind of thematic hook to hang it on helps you sell it and ultimately you know if these are new writers you want to expose mm-hmm. them to new readers so it helps to actually sell the thing yeah um, secondly we, we try to make the themes push writers to think about structure right which I don't think enough short story writers or would be beginner short story writers do um, it seems so right, not like a, not a theme then it's when you say structure yeah so I mean it's the Nouvelle Espionage one is odd because it kind of it's part theme and part structure in a way because you, if you're looking at reinventing uh, the kind of tropes of the, mm-hmm. the spy story then yeah. it, it's inevitably a bit about structure okay um, yeah. but for example you know uh, we've done them in the past that looked at uh, Reveal the idea of reveal, which is the one that's just about to come out, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so it's kind of like looking about misdirection and the way that you're kind of planting subtle clues about what the reveal at the end of the story is going to mm, be. All and right, it's, it's kind of like tight technical skills um, in terms of realizing the short story, and we're always kind of pushing for that. Mm-hmm. I want to do one in feature that's about the artifice story, so that's a kind of story. It's sometimes called irreal. Um, uh, where it's it'll be a story that has one impossible or supernatural element set against the normative context. Okay, how's that different um, from surreal? Uh, because it's about the limitation of. So if you think of surrealism or magical realism, mm-hmm. anything can happen at any time in those kind of stories. Mm-hmm. So someone might suddenly right, turn okay. into a butterfly, yeah, and then the next thing you know, the fairy appears. Or yeah, whatever. I always find that this a bit of a cop out. Exactly. Yeah. So the ground shift beneath your feet as a reader yeah. and you start to feel like you cheated almost mm-hmm. the uh, artifice story is very much about the, the writer setting the reader almost like the rules of the game at the start so yeah. we publish a writer called Adam Merrick who specialises in this kind of story Okay. and so there'd be one impossible element but the rest of the world is kind of how you'd expect it and yeah. the, the story plays by its own rules I guess that would that moves nicely into the next bit which is the MacGuffin oh yeah what okay I kind of have an idea of, of what it is and I've been I know your catchphrase is literary jukebox yeah uh, is it all is it audio piece what, what is it basically well uh, it is a platform for short fiction poetry and essays in text and audio form right anyone can publish stuff on it but there's also a lot of sample content from other indie publishers, mm-hmm. so Blood Axe, Carcanet, Valley Press, People Tree, mm-hmm. Flapjack. Um, so it's not self-published. Well, it is because you can't. Anyone can publish on there, okay. and there's no moderation before it goes on. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, I mean, there are certain mechanisms on it, like kind of rating and uh, sort of trending stories according to what's what's popular so good stuff mm-hmm. rises to the top right I mean. do you think okay no i'm i'm always skeptical of these sorts of things because i think whenever it's kind of crowdsourced mm. it's a, the best, the ones that rise to the top are the people who are best at twitter and marketing rather than their story i wish that were the case because 
um, <laughs> it would make our job a lot easier in terms of sort of marketing it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> all, all these people would be getting hundreds of people onto their friends onto mm-hmm. rate yep. stories and push them up. Um, I think a lot of the writers that we publish are modest, and it's been so far really kind of grassrootsy mm-hmm. in that <clears throat> it's a lot of stuff on there is by proper short story writers and proper poets yep. who are, I think, often quite modest. So they publish some stuff. They might mention it on Facebook or Twitter, but they're not like mm. bullying friends to go and yeah. read it because like, they don't really need to. So yeah. um, the, the for a self-publishing platform, the quality of stuff on there is really high. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I'm going to say that. Yeah. But it, it just is. Mm. Um, it's, it's really good. And... Uh, yeah, that's partly just because since we launched it, we've kind of reached out to other publishers or yep. to writers that we like, even yep. in terms of just like, yeah, I read a story that I like online. Yeah. I track down the email address of the right. author and go, do you want to put something on here? And oh, it's like great. legwork like yep. that. But do you think once it gets more popular and people start, you know, sticking stuff on there? Inevit- well, there's already some stuff on there that is not as good as... Yeah. I, I can put it tactfully. Look, it's just yeah. a self-publishing platform. Yep. It's democratic and mm-hmm. people have different tastes. Yep. Look, there's stuff, stuff on there that is not to my taste, put, put it that way. Yep. But that's kind of the point of a self-publishing platform. Mm-hmm. It should be... I feel kind of like ideologically that it should be... Um, it's a kind of almost like a safety valve or a corrective mm-hmm. to the publishing world. I'm all in favour of self-publishing whether people do it on Amazon, who I don't mm-hmm. like as a company, or, or just on a blog, or whatever. Yeah. I think it, it sort of harks back to pamphleteering, you know, mm-hmm. Jonathan Swift and stuff like this. I don't think the publishing industry, the conglomerate publishing industry, is a very good arbiter of literary quality. Mm. And I'd hate that it was just left in their hands. Yeah, so, so are you saying that because of all the stuff that they publish from, like, comedians and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, I think they're after a fast book, they're after what mm-hmm. can be sold in bulk. Tesco. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's there's a very healthy independent publishing sector, and the more that conglomerates drop the ball yeah. and drop mid list mm-hmm. authors, then uh, the stronger the independent sector in the UK becomes, mm-hmm. because there are all these writers out, out there who used to be published by the big five publishers yep. who've now going to independence, and independents I think do a better job of publishing them as well. Mm. Um, get, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say to get back to McGuffin, the. the a couple of key things about it that are worth mentioning is everything on there is in text and audio form. Yes. So if you're a writer, you upload the text of your story mm-hmm. or your poem, and then an MP3 reading of it. Uh, so, okay, so that breeds an immediate question. Yeah. Just because they're a good writer doesn't mean they're a good reader. That's so, true. So would you offer a service, like if someone's... Because, I, I mean, some writers are serious, like, well, timid, really. Yeah. They probably just aren't... You know, very good at performance. Like just because they're a good writer doesn't mean they can perform it. That's true. Yeah. Uh, would you, if someone did a bad reading, would you? Well, I guess you wouldn't, because you don't moderate at no. all. So you just think, well, it's fine. Yeah. That's, but that's you people write, write the text and audio separately, and you do see some stuff on there that's got a high text rating and a low mm-hmm. audio rating, and that might be due to the performance or yeah. it's really bad sound quality. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be professionally recorded, and a lot of people just record on their phone mm-hmm. at home. So in quite a lot of them, you can hear like police sirens in the distance mm-hmm. or like kids playing yeah. in the next room yeah sort of like this podcast yeah. yeah and it kind of adds to the charm mm-hmm. of it though as well yeah, particularly if it's like a love poem mm-hmm. or something and you can hear I don't know 
yeah someone like washing a, the dishes and that. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that's I, I want I would like to think that what, what it's doing is asking people to kind of reevaluate what mm-hmm. is value in terms of audio and audio books yeah and it, it used to be well, it's kind of still is in a way that the idea of value in an audio book meant it had to be studio produced. Yeah. But there's been a huge explosion in digital self-publishing and, you know, people self-publish books that other people like and there's nothing professional about it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of really amateur and DIY. And I'd like to think that MacGuffin is seeing whether you can do the same with audio. Right. Because, you know, if you've got an iPhone in a quiet room you can get near broadcast standard yep. audio so there's no reason why with a little bit of practice people can't yeah. get something that's enjoyable Would is there any kind of crossover between MacGuffin and the comic press like if say you someone put a, a story up on MacGuffin and it got really popular and you guys really liked it yeah. would you publish there it? there are already uh, several on there that I'm going to solicit submissions mm. from because they're really good Right, different submissions from what they've already uploaded to MacGuffin. Yeah. Because yeah, would yeah. you consider that's publishing it if they put it up on MacGuffin? I wouldn't actually for um, a, like, for example, if it was perfect for a new writer anthology, I might ask them to unpublish it so then it's exclusive when it's in the anthology. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I wouldn't. And the, yeah, there have been a few people where I thought, wow, this person is really good and they've been completely out of our kind of network and, mm-hmm. and, and loop. So it's already brought some people to our attention. Um, yeah, uh, we also put, I mean, samples of comma stories on there. So mm-hmm. in future, we decided that whenever we publish a new book, we're going to get at least one story on there, and right. you can, you know, include a link back to where people can buy the book. Yeah. So it's like a kind of free sample. Yeah. But that's no different to if you publish an ebook, the first story in it has to be Amazon make you make the first chapter of a book free mm-hmm. on Kindle. So it would be out there anyway in text form. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're kind of giving anything away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there any kind of like analytics other than just what voting? Like, is there? Can they? Yeah. Can you see? No, there's there's open analytics quite controversially. Mm. So oh, so everyone can see how many views and plays yes. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you can see um, a map of the world with pins on it, mm-hmm. and that shows uh, where people have read or listened to a story if they've kind of agreed for their location data to be collected. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't. So it will come up with it when you start using it, it will say, is it okay to use your location data yep. on your um, laptop? But it's not, going to, it's not going to be anything more than the city, is it? It's not like their house. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. We um, fuzzify it to within 25 kilometers square. Mm. It's anonymous. Um, we did like a lot of work on privacy beforehand mm-hmm. for exactly these reasons. I mean, we published people writers in China and Saudi Arabia, we don't necessarily want to build something that's going to allow the government to, you know, look at a pin and go, mm-hmm. oh, that's someone's house. Yeah, so reading, that's a very good point, you know, actually, yeah. Um, yeah. Reading kind of uh, rebellious literature or whatever. So it yeah. really doesn't, doesn't even have to be rebellious. Well, in yeah. certain places, just be anything, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it is a concern. Um, we did, like, for example, we consulted the Information Commissioner's Office mm-hmm. who regulate data in the UK. Yeah. Just make sure it's all kind of legal. But uh, aside from the legality, there's a kind of ethical dimension to it as well. So there's an incognito mode. And if you do that, then, like, absolutely no data at all is collected. Yep. The thing about, I think it's been a bit controversial in a way because it's public. And I think that's because writers don't want to feel embarrassed if a lot of 
people are seen to like drop out of their stories or poems. Yeah, I get that. Although we we surveyed um, the users uh, like a month after we launched it, and the vast majority said keep it as it is, mm-hmm. which surprised me. Um, so yeah, people seem With, to, they, they want the open yeah, analytics so other yeah, people can do. see it. Yeah. Some oh, well, some authors really hate it and have said I would publish on it, but I don't like the idea of people seeing the analytics. Mm. That's fair enough, but yeah. the vast majority have said I see no, I don't like it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I d- it doesn't tell you. The analytics don't tell you whether it's a good story. No. So it's got like a kind of dropout yeah. graph. Starts at hundred percent as people drop out. It when you say drop out, like people stop listening before it finishes. Yeah. Oh, so right, they okay. exit before it. So oh, right. Like, yeah, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that so, is terrifying. Yeah. Um, so on the audio, let's say it's five minutes long. Mm-hmm. It starts at 100% of yeah. read it, uh, listeners are listening to it. And then as one drops out because they exit the right. audio, then the graph goes down a little bit. So you might right. find you've got like a weak scene mm-hmm. where the graph just goes, jags yeah. down and you might want to go back and re-edit it mm-hmm. and you can compare by date with different drafts for yeah. example if you republish. one thing that I found that's quite interesting about that is so stories that have distinct section breaks mm-hmm. so like imagine like a kind of hard double line break and they go you know two years later blah blah blah, blah, blah yeah, yeah. Um, those stories tend to have high dropouts in the section breaks and you, that kind of goes against conventional wisdom. Yeah. Having like because you think that's supposed to make, create interest, isn't it? Yeah, short, sharp mm. sections where people are like, all right, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, I can read on. But it, it's almost like it gives the reader or listener permission to hmm. disengage. It's, have you had? Have you been approached by other publishers for the data to see, like? Well, no, because it's public. Or editor. Oh yeah, of course. So that's sort of. I think people are a bit confused as to why it's open, and the idea, ideologically behind it, is that. You know, whatever you do, imagine if you're on Facebook or you're reading a book on Amazon mm-hmm. or Kobo or something like that. All this secret data is being collected and basically sold yeah. about you and it's attached to your identity. So we just wanted to do something with analytics that was hopefully useful but completely open. Yeah. So except for some very broad over sort of global statistics about like the amount of people reading compared to listening. Mm-hmm. All the analytics it is publicly available. And that's so, you know, we've got nothing to sell to mm-hmm. anyone. So we're not going to suddenly flog McGuffin yep. along with people's personal data because there yeah. is no secret data to it. But it's interesting because, I mean, there's some valuable data there, especially when you're ca- talking about, like, storytelling. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, if you, if for, like, for instance, if you say that, you know, there's a, a time break, people stop reading there. Yeah. That could easily, if that got out, people would probably go, okay, no more, like an agent or say, no more time breaks. <laughs> yeah, you just end up with um, kind of a, a, a Foster Wallace type, mm. like the whole story is like one paragraph. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But maybe that would just spread dropouts evenly across the whole story. I mm. um, yeah, there's some, in terms of global analytics, there are some interesting things like, so people who are on an app, like a, 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 the mobile version, so you've essentially got a binary choice of whether to read or listen to it, a, okay. anything. More than 50% on mobile devices choose to listen, mm-hmm. whereas on uh, a desktop, only 16% of people choose to listen. Yeah, that, that doesn't sounds, surprise me because no, it's screen size. Of course. Yeah. It's it's obvious and people are walking along mm-hmm. and you know on their commute or whatever. But it is interesting in a way because as far as we know, that's the first data that's ever been produced right. in that. And publishers are really interested in audiobooks at the moment because 
um, they've kind of had their fingers burnt with e-books yeah. because it was all device-led. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Kindle came out and then uh, Amazon started adding more functionality until it became a tablet. Yeah. Then it's got Netflix, Facebook, Twitter, yeah. iPlayer, whatever, just other distractions. Mm-hmm. And e-book sales started to level off. Yeah. And now, you know, we're looking at a future of wearables and God knows what a screen is going to be yeah. Yeah. in five years of a mm-hmm. mobile device. But one thing that you can pretty much guarantee is that people always want to listen to stuff yeah. while doing other stuff. Mm. So I think audio is seen as a safe bet. And mm-hmm. I know that like audiobook revenue in the UK has like, it's got the figure is um, that I keep in my head has, uh, <laughs> has increased by 170% over the last four years. So yeah. it's kind of the biggest growth industry in publishing. Mm. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, do you, you said you don't moderate them before they go on. Do you moderate them afterwards? The stories, I mean, like no. say something offensive. We have we have content rules, and um, you know we've thought about this. Mm. We have content rules that are pretty specific, and it's like you know, no libelous or yeah, um, exactly material. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing racist or otherwise yeah. discriminatory. No instruction to harm or mm-hmm. commit a crime. It's all the kind of standard publishing stuff that you'd have in a publisher content. No pornographic depictions of people under 18 mm-hmm. um, and if someone breaches those content rules and it's reported to us we'll yeah. take it down there's a yeah. big report button oh also copyright infringement probably yeah. the biggest one yeah so if someone's either wholesale kind of copied and pasted someone's story yeah um, or it's been plagiarized and an author thinks they've got a very yeah. good case um, that's a bit of a gray area mm. and that's kind of what worries me if someone says well, I've written a story that's got a, an alien coming to Earth in a spaceship and then there's another one on the guffin, they stole my story. Yeah. That's when it gets a bit difficult to answer. Yeah, because it's a public space. Like, you, I mean, fame, like big authors get sued all the time because they, because they say that, you know, you know, that, you know she got Harry, uh, J.K. Rowling got yeah. Harry Potter from my wizard story. <coughs> I know. Yeah. I think probably the longer I work in publishing, the more I... Think a lot of those cases are specious. I mm. don't mean that the the plaintiff doesn't think that, that genuinely that they've got a case. But mm. if you sit on a big, um, if you sit on submissions, short story submissions, yeah, like uh, let's say you've got five hundred submissions. Well, fifty of them are going to be about someone whose parents have got dementia, mm-hmm. or parent has dementia, yeah. and you know another ten will, you know, be set. No, more than that, a hundred of them will be set by the sea mm-hmm. and will be about a fisherman. Yeah, just, yeah. That's just the kind of... People don't realise that other people are kind of writing... They don't understand what cliches are because yeah. they don't read other people's submissions. Yeah. Um, so one of those people could say, oh, this is really similar to my story. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it is. here's another ten that were also similar yeah. to your story. Yeah. They didn't all plagiarise you. Mm-hmm. However, it's a massive deal in poetry at the moment because you'll, you, you may know that uh, some serious cases of plagiarism have arisen in recent, recent last couple of years where people yeah. really have ripped off other poets and and got caught doing it. So I can't pretend it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, the other thing I know about you guys is that you do this creative, uh, just to switch gears completely, mm-hmm. creative writing graduates day. Yeah. Um, this was your inaugur- inaugural. It was, yeah. Year. How did that go? It went really well. Um, yeah. uh, the feedback was really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's good speakers. Mm-hmm. And the format seemed to work. 
So there was a kind of keynote and then parallel mm-hmm. panels about various things mm-hmm. and then kind of one-to-one pitching sessions with agents and mm-hmm. publishers and a lot of those you know I mean people were pitching specific books but a lot of those were kind of this is where I'm at what mm-hmm. would you advise me to do yeah type of things uh, and people seem pretty happy with that mm-hmm. um, yeah it's kind of, there are similar like writers day um, events but to do it as a kind of specific creative writing graduate careers fair I yeah. think I, be, I think it's the first time it's been done, and um, it kind of seems obvious in retrospect yeah. mm-hmm. that we should have done it like years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd so, be interested to know like the follow up to it though, like yeah. in a year's time, what are the success stories that come from it? Yeah. That would be. So did you? Were there people saying that the um, the pitching sessions were successful? Some I guess you them, don't know. Yeah, some, it was, some of them have, but it's a bit too mm-hmm. early to know. Yeah. Um, I do know that the agents and publishers told us that they'd had like seriously properly good pitches yeah. that they are considering and it's the you know people had researched them it was the kind of thing mm-hmm. that they publish and it wasn't yeah. like they weren't just pay, paying lip service to it and yeah. kind of turning up um, they were like really impressed yeah. uh, so um, yeah but the proof of the pudding will be in the eating yeah. I think that, that, I mean I was there um, that one issue I had Okay, I know on. this is my own personal <laughs> vendetta. Was that because I didn't know who I was pitching to mm. until the day? I yeah. couldn't do that research. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, it's tricky because you inevitably have to say to people, "What are your interests?" Yeah. Like I don't know. My, yeah. So I, mine was science fiction. Yeah. And I got like a science fiction publisher, which was yeah. great, and then a uh, literary scout. Yeah. But so you've got a certain pe- until. People, we actually close the bookings mm-hmm. and get people to say, this is what I'm into. Mm-hmm. Um, then, until that point, we can't match people up. Yeah. So, it, it's. I think it's something that what we probably should do is do it much earlier mm-hmm. and say to people, God, if you want a book, there's actually, you've got to do it like a month before or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. But then we would have lo- lo- um, kind of lost some people booking yeah. in, the, in the week before. So Yeah, it's a tricky one. Until everyone's booked, you can't really allocate the... Yeah, um, the agents very well. So. Would you ever consider it uh, like a first come first serve? People choosing which agents, or would that just be Maybe a logistical should. nightmare? Maybe we should because it kept people to book early. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, I mean, but then for, people always have a gripe. Yeah, you know, and I mean, especially me, I've always got a gripe. I know, but they, yeah. but people would go, oh well, I really wanted that agent and I didn't get them, and I yeah. think people will naturally always do that if yeah. there's a kind of limited amount, um, and I don't know what you. Do about that. Yeah. Plus the logistics of it would probably be a bit of a yeah nightmare. I mean, I, I think we thought well, it was the first one. It was priced very competitively. Yeah. Um, and hopefully affordable to people, and you could get like a discount if you did group booking. Mm-hmm. And so I think I hope that people thought they kind of got quite good value out of it. Even yeah. If they, you know, like two people came from France for it. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So like they paid. I don't know. I can't remember how much the tickets were now. Twenty-five pounds. Twenty-five pounds, right? So <laughs> oh, I remember. Paid, yeah. So, but they, so they must have paid like you know the cost of a flight from France and a hotel yeah. on top of that. Yeah. You know, so I think some people thought, thought that you know, it's, and they they seem pretty happy with it. Yeah. Like, people who came from France. As well, well so. good. Well, if they do, then <laughs> um, you know us moaners should get just. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant. But yeah. No, no, no. That's I, I'm, yeah, I was yeah. being serious about myself. Yeah. No, but I'd like we genuine. 
genuinely interested in suggestions of how to make it better, to be honest, because mm-hmm. it was like the first time that we yeah. done it. And um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's also, it's odd in a way but it's because we're very, you know, we're a small independent and we're really kind of feisty and non-profit. Yep. Yeah. And in a way, set ourselves against the mainstream publishing yep. um, world. Yeah. And it's very kind of London-centric and, yeah. you know, uh, a bit posh, I'll yep. be honest, compared to us. And yet, we're doing a graduate fair that necessarily has to be about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so although we have, like, lots of contacts in the publishing world and we're not, like you know, hopefully too chippy about it. Yeah. It's not necessarily the kind of waters that we swim in as well. Yeah. So we were finding our feet a little bit as well by kind mm. of setting it up. Yeah. I'd say, though, like, the agents and publishers who came were so enthusiastic and kind of generous with their time mm-hmm. and everything that we could have asked for more. Of yeah. Them, uh, on when you say that, it's very London-centric. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to... Because I... One of the things I was going to ask you was, why are you guys in Manchester? Like, why Manchester? That's just where we live. Is that just where? Is that just? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that literally the only reason? Well, we couldn't afford to move to London. Yeah. Um, but if you could, would you? Well, if we like, you know, if there was a comma lottery syndicate and comma won it, and we just ploughed the money back into comma. Is it, is it hard, no, to, be in, is it hard no, to be far away from London? Yeah, in, it is. Actually, no. In, in the lottery scenario, I mm-hmm. think we'd go, actually, no, I think we can justify it spending it on different things, like commissioning mm-hmm. more books or yep. doing other stuff. Um, I don't know. It, you, sort, you can end up feeling a bit out of the loop compared to London publishing because you feel like, at first at least, you feel like everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. But... Actually, in the kind of literary publishing that we do, particularly in translation, it is really friendly. Yeah. So if you go to London Book Fair or wherever, you know, it started off no one knew us, and now we've been doing it for a while. And yeah. Knows us, and it's like it's a bit of a club. Yeah. And we don't feel like outsiders anymore. I tell you what, there's a massive chip, like chip on my shoulder alert. All there's right, a good. massive socio-economic um, diversity problem in publishing. It's so many people who work in publishing were privately educated, mm-hmm. and um, very few people from the north. Um, and that's because to get into it, you generally have to do an unpaid internship at a London publisher. And if you're poor or your parents are poor, you can't afford to do it. Yeah. And it's like the big. It's starting to be talked about now, but it's always uh, annoyed me a bit about publishing because it's not. It inevitably means that the kind of books that are published and don't reflect the lives of working class yep. people or people who aren't rich. And when you look at what's published by the big five, then there's not enough diversity, not just in terms of, kind of um, you know, the the sort of t- things you would typically think of. Literary issues. fiction. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I mean, there's probably in terms of diversity, in terms of ethnicity. Right. The... Um, not so much gender these days, mm-hmm. um, although there is right at the top of publishing, there aren't enough women on, on the boards, but mm-hmm. most of uh, literary fiction publishing is actually, um, kind of <laughs> and there's a lot of women involved in it, and that's yep. a good thing. Um, but the one kind of elephant in the room is this sort of socio-economic problem, and it's, mm-hmm. like, and it's a big deal, and it makes me cross, mm. because I don't think reading is just something for posh people. No. In fact, I'd probably say the opposite. <laughs> How is your writing going? Are you, because I know you're an editor, you're yeah. a publisher. 
you're a writer as well. Well, so, like I, I did an MA at uh, University of Manchester like, mm-hmm. years ago, like 15 years ago or something, and um, did a load of other jobs in it, and then kind of thought, I know I really want to work in publishing, so I started working at Comrade, and that's like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, and then recently I started writing again, and it's been a bit of a dirty secret. Mm. But um, I, yeah, I started doing a PhD that's like part theory and part mm-hmm. sort of creative practices, research, writing, and just started publishing stories again, starting like last year mm-hmm. when I um, published a story, uh, and it's really frightening to because you feel like you sort of lose your editorial authority because someone's going to read your story and think Jim that's shit I'm not mm. taking any pointers from you mate. yeah <laughs> yeah even though they're two so. completely different <coughs> animals really editing and they are I'll tell you what editor, it doesn't matter that you've been a short story editor for 10 years it doesn't make you any better as a short story writer mm. you're still just as shit as <laughs> you would be anyway and you yeah. have to and also you have to try and switch off the editor's part of your brain that inhibits you from writing yeah. anything because you need that story down first. You do, yeah. And if it's if it's stopping you from getting the story rolling, yeah, it's like you say, inhibited, isn't it? You just have to write a load of shit to yeah. get to the good stuff. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of being allowing yourself to be comfortable with writing a load of mm-hmm. shit. You know, you would hope that someone else's editorial input would just stop you from publishing shit. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, but you're get you're having something published, aren't you? Uh, I, so I had my first story published l- last year, and that was in the Journal of Short Fiction, uh, in Theory and Practice, which is quite kind of academic mm-hmm. type book. Which is not like, surprising. A guy that's going for his PhD no. and works as an editor during the day. No, um, and and so that that was really nice. And then mm-hmm. it was picked up, and it was in the the best British short stories anthology, the um, edited by Nick Royal. Mm. Um, so that's been good, and. Uh, yeah, it's the first of hopefully a few um, that I'm going to try and place here and there over mm-hmm. the coming years. Um, to what end, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. At the moment, I'm just enjoying it, though. It's kind of fun. And, yeah. you know, when I finish a story that I don't hate, like <laughs> I have a really low hit rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll write 10 or 15 stories, and then one of them I'll kind of think, I don't hate that. Yeah. And then there'll be another couple that I think, they're, you know, I, I hate them a bit, yeah. but, but I can sort yeah. of maybe live with them. Yeah, um, that's the editor's brain at work. No, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd like to think which is good, and I think a lot. I think a lot of people should have more of that. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I I agree with that because mm. um, you know it's it's a it's a big kind of privilege, or it's asking a lot of mm. someone to say, "Give me half an hour of your time to read this story." Yeah. And unless you really fucking care about it, I don't think you should do it. I don't think people should write and publish short stories unless they think they've got something to say. Yeah. Or at least they've cared enough to make the whole thing entertaining or diverting yeah. or, or whatever their aim is, you know. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you should, on a whim, write a short story and fire it off into the ether without having any idea of the effect that you want it to have on the yeah. reader or that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, or what's the point, really? Yeah. And it may, I think it makes it easier, I'm finding, having that now published my one single story. Yeah. <laughs> but the, it's a story that I really care about, mm-hmm. and it, but it's quite divisive. So it's the kind of story that you could really hate mm-hmm. um, or, or, or really like, hopefully. Yeah. 
But because I sort of believe in the idea behind it and what it's about, that makes it easier for me to be comfortable with people hating it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 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 so, definitely. Whereas if I was kind of in ambivalent about it, then um, then it would get to me if people hated it. But I'm totally fine with people hating it. That's interesting, it. actually, because you would think it would be the opposite, that you'd be hurt if people really hated something that you're really passionate about. No, I feel like Bulletproof because I yeah. feel like yeah. I'm quite certain that I, you know, I'm not saying it's a good story, mm. but it's about something that I care about that I feel. Yeah. When does it come out? Uh, that's already out, so that's mm. in the Best British Short, short Story 2015. Mm-hmm. Or um, the Journal of Short Fiction in Theory and Practice, I don't know what edition it is, summer <laughs> 2015 or spring 2015, which yeah. is also really good because it's got essays about short stories in that are pretty interesting. Great. That's great. Um, that's all I need. Okay. Um, thanks, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. That was a, a great chat with Jim. He's a lovely guy. We had a, a chat afterwards, and it's one of those things where it's a lesson. Is that the sand flattener again? Yep. Sand flattener again. Um, we, gosh, he's going in the other, why how is it getting louder? He's going in the other direction. He's actually going away from me and it's getting louder. Um, yeah, so the wind's picking up a bit, as you can probably hear. I'm going to have to keep recording after these interviews because we had quite a, a nice chat once I stopped recording. It's the same thing happened with Nick, where they kind of let their hair down once the record button is off. I'm going to have to figure out some way to get what they say afterwards. Um, Maybe I'll just tape over the red light so they can't tell it's been recorded. Is that legal? I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to go and find a drink. It's 8 a.m. Well, you can't be a, sh- a champagne environmentalist without the champagne, can you? And if they put orange juice in it, that's like a breakfast. I don't know. It feels like the right thing to do. I will talk to you in probably a couple weeks' time where I'll be. it'll be an interview with... Dave Hartley and Ben Judge and it will be coming to you from a more a much colder and a much more miserable place also speaking of which this podcast is supposed to be about writers from the northwest and um, it's been the sole property of Manchester writers at the moment so if you are from Liverpool or Leeds or you know what I might even just drop the northwest if you're from England, and you and you're a published writer, or you've got a, a a night that you want to talk about, or I don't know if there's some kind of part of the industry that I've not really thought about that might be interesting to talk about, then give me an email, and I I'll see you in a bit. Bye.